Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Eye of the Duck early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great-tasting, high-quality organic dairy ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. Open the five-bay door, pal. Have we lost the big radio contact? Hello, Hell, do you read me? What's the story? You read me, Hell? Hi, I'm Adam Volerich. And I'm Dom Nero. And this is a podcast about movies and the scenes that make them special. What David Lynch calls Eye of the Duck scenes. According to Lynch, an Eye of the Duck is a moment or sequence in a film that defines the whole. Each week on our podcast, we explore a movie by finding the scene at its core. From the earliest days of the medium, filmmakers have transported us beyond Earth's atmosphere. In this miniseries, we'll be charting cinema's greatest space stories, the movies where science fiction, fact, and boundless imagination converge. Welcome to Eye of the Duck, a space odyssey. I think we're finally in the the present day now, right? We have finally... Like <laughs> what like, does that mean? The, for the past few weeks, we've been like recording stuff to be like put into the past and now mm. with our new uh amazing new setup with uh the morbid network some of our episodes are like being broadcast like two at the same time and uh we've recorded an announcement that we had to be plugged into like a previous episode but now like we're finally in the present tense everyone knows we're on the network yes and we are also right. on the network <laughs> where <we're, laughs> it's <laughs> It's true. There's no more. Uh, there's no more dancing around it. We've, we've arrived. There's no more. There's no more ambiguity. Uh, yes. Things have taken shape. It's all very clear. It has been quite difficult, though, to, for one, to keep it all under wraps, but also to uh, speak in this loose, kind of ambiguous way of like, you know, something has happened. We're going to like you know, insert the happening later <laughs> on once it finally happens. <laughs> yeah, but. it's been very difficult. Um, it's also been, it's it's been additionally difficult because um, 
once again, uh, I have the novel <laughs> coronavirus uh, and it hit it, perfect storm, perfect yes. timing for all of this, including all of our sort of like, you know, re-records for all those episodes. You too now appear to have <laughs> unrelated, <laughs> appear to have yes. COVID again as well. I somehow um, have, yes, I have COVID-19 as well. Is it from our Zoom calls? No one knows. <laughs> I don't know. But so if uh, if we sound tired or groggy or hoarse <laughs> or congested, uh, it is because we're both uh, doing battle with uh, with the coronavirus once more. Um, this is the, the Omicron 3000. What, what is uh, what is this new Omicron? This called? is Omicron uh, XB16 or something. Nice. I've lost track. That honestly. actually, it sounds fitting for this series. It does. You're suffering from XB16. <laughs> it sounds like something Hal might say. Yeah. Or Sal, or honestly. Sal. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, before, before we get into 2010, uh, the film we're, we're talking about today, 2010, the, the year we make contact, just one last clarification. We opened the episode with this, but... Yes, we are on the Morbid Podcast Network now. This episode has been uh, broadcast in the past. If if you are listening on Apple Podcasts or another platform and you're not a subscriber to Wondery Plus, uh, this episode was already available on Amazon Music and Wondery Plus last week. And you can listen there if you want to listen in the future. Yes, which means that currently, if you're listening to this episode on the day it was released on the Apple Podcast app, yes. you could just hop on over to the uh, Amazon Music or, or Wondery Plus app and you could listen to next week's episode, Solaris. Yes, the Tarkovsky one. And now we should get into Hal and Sal. Hal and Sal, stars of 2010, The Year We Make Contact. One thing I realized while, while watching this film, Dom, is that history is repeating itself because... Last year, we finished a series, we did our Eye of 2021, mm -hmm. and then we covered a Stanley Kubrick film based on a novel, <laughs> and we followed that up yes. by covering a film that uh, was both an adaptation of a novel that was a sequel written in response to the Stanley Kubrick film. By the original uh, author. By the original author, uh, and then adapted into a sequel of the film as well. Um, and we have done the same thing here. We finished a series. We did the eye of 2022. We did a Stanley Kubrick film mm -hmm. based Both on a got novel. COVID. <laughs> I think the, I think was that it? was a little different. But, um, and now we're doing a, uh, a film based on a novel written by the original novels author in response to the previous installment in the series. Yes, it's all very, uh, all very peculiar. Time is sort of drifting around the surface of what is it, Jupiter? That they're they're uh, yes, the moons of Jupiter around. is where they're returning to. <laughs> Io, but it, Io. this 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 made me uh, this made me curious. I was like, are there any other films that are sequel films to Kubrick films that I've somehow ah. missed? Because a lot of people have missed that this film exists. You yes, know? one of like, the reasons you know, I'm very excited to talk about it today. Right, so I was like, is there like, is there a Clockwork Orange 2? Is there a, uh, oh, is, a there a, is there an Eyes Wide Shut 2? Is there a Full Metal <laughs> Jacket 2? And I looked into it and uh, 
from what I could tell, there is actually a sequel book to to Full Metal Jacket, or rather, the the book that the movie Full Metal Jacket was based on did receive a second installment, uh, but there is no film adaptation of it. Um, and as far as I could tell, none of the other uh, none of the other novels he's made films out of uh, have had sequels. Doctor Strangelove is is based on a novel, isn't it? Yes, but it didn't yeah, have a it didn't have a sequel. I, I mean, it has that weird connection to the the book and movie Failsafe. Do you know that story? No, I don't. So Failsafe, which becomes a Sidney Lumet film, the novel that it's based on was so similar to Red oh. Alert, the novel that Doctor Strangelove was based on, that Kubrick uh, and the author sued. The end result being that um, Paramount bought the film and then released it after Doctor Strangelove to make sure that there wasn't any confusion uh, <laughs> and that and that Kubrick would sort of get to put his out there first and it wouldn't be compared to Failsafe. God, how strange. I mean, it does speak to the larger uh, theme, perhaps, of this episode of uh, Kubrick, like, making such a impactful piece of work that... Uh, his the shadow of his work is is so expansive it's really hard yeah. for a filmmaker to make anything you know near the periphery of it without getting encompassed by that that kubrick sized shadow right yes the the, the shadow of his monolith his monolithic yes. shadow there are many monoliths in this film actually monolie perhaps <laughs> No, I don't know about that. <laughs> That's a, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna say no, thank you to uh, to Monolai. Monolai. Part of me is is sort of uh, disappointed that there aren't more sequels made in this manner to Kubrick films, simply because they are just really like curious and intriguing, like uh, case studies. Yeah, because both The Shining and 2001 are so sort of like mysterious and ambiguous, and so sort of like imbued with power and feeling and then both of them end up with these sequels that are so far less mysterious they are so clear and clean cut like we loved we both loved dr sleep uh i I quite like this i thought it was very cool um but they they both uh sort of decide like well there's no way i can recreate that vibe so the only thing i can do is be like more human more clear and uh and and just be sort of like the best I can be as a more sort of traditional sequel. Yeah. I am kicking myself that I didn't watch this film before we recorded our Dr. Sleep episode, because I think, I mean, this is, you know, the earlier case of this happening Yeah, and it's just, yeah, I, it sounds like, again, we're on a very similar wavelength that it's very strange that both filmmakers decided, okay, uh, Kubrick is cold. I'm going to be warm. You know, <laughs> Kubrick is, is, uh, inhuman. I'm going to like explore the humanity of this. Yeah. Uh, and so 2010 is, I mean, okay, so we're, we're going to spoil this film and I would say of, of oh, yeah, many, completely. yeah. And of a lot of the movies that we have covered on, on this podcast of all of them, this may be in, you know, the small handful that I would assume very, very few of our listeners have seen. Um, yeah. And maybe a case of a movie that many listeners didn't even know existed. Um, right. Yeah. For the it's, longest time. I, I, like I didn't I, know yeah. it existed until like relatively recently. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, 
it's a film I've always been curious about. I knew that, <laughs> I just think it's so funny that uh, like my first interest in it is because it's called 2010. I just think that's <laughs> funny. Of like, It is funny. <laughs> 2001 uh, was selected as the year for a very, uh, you know, purposeful meaning that uh, the new millennium, according to astronomers, they believe it, it actually starts on the year 2001. I don't know why this is called 2010. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's nine years later. It's the year they, yeah. it's the year they make contact. It's not, I mean, uh, but again, 2001 is kind of the year they make contact. Although I guess in this film, it's sort of exploring like the world, like right. uh, fully makes contact with these uh, monolai, <laughs> the monolai no. people. No. Uh, still quite mysterious. Um, there are many mysteries of this film that are created in this film. Uh, mm-hmm. The mysteries of 2001, for the most part, at least to me, seem to kind of be solved in this. Like a, a lot yes. of like the the uh, enduring secrets of that movie are kind of exposed here, and they're all explained in relatively explicit detail. Yeah. But this film does uh, make some some cool choices of like, okay, this is still a sequel to 2001, so we must have some mysteries of our own, uh, some of which are just never really explained. Um, and as you said, others are like explained in such explicit detail, it's like... Oh, you didn't have to like tell me that much. <laughs> I got, you could just give me a little bit of it, but my, this I is mean, a my cool understanding exercise. Is that, and, yeah. is that much of the the stuff that is like made explicit was already explicit in Clark's books? Sure, and I think yeah, that's a similar situation to The Shining and Doctor Sleep, and that right, you know, Mike Flanagan and Doctor Sleep had this delicate and and extremely difficult uh, balance he had to strike of like a lot of this stuff was just said out loud in the shining book. So I need to sort of say it out loud here so I can join the book and the movie and also tell a, uh, you know, an emotional and fulfilling, uh, story on its own. It's a really hard thing to do. And both films, like both, both 2010 and Dr. Sleep are sort of both kind of grappling with like, what the fuck even was that other movie? Right. (laughs) It's just yeah. like it's it's not just that like the film the filmmaker is like I'm going to make a clear and like you know relatable film. It's I'm going to make a clear and relatable film that not just like answers questions that like were left hanging in the first one, but even seeks to just try and like grapple with like what was that? Like truly what was that? Yeah. So uh, I mean this film is about a mission that these U.S. astronauts and, and Russian cosmonauts are taking to quite literally figure out like what the fuck happened. I mean, they pretty yes. much say like, we're going to figure out what happened nine years ago. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess the first point to discuss is uh, they recast. Uh, what, what's his so name? Dr. Hayward Floyd was originally performed by William Sylvester and he is recast here uh, as uh, as Roy Scheider. Yeah. So people who have seen 2001, you remember Haywood Floyd as the dude who is sleeping in the spaceship plane 
who is just going to the moon to figure out like what the heck is going on. And he's got a little bit of like a Washington, like there's like red tape here. I'm not going to tell you what's up kind of thing. He's a little bit uh, fake as, as a guy. I I don't, we don't really get any more characteristics than that. I mean, we do meet his daughter on a, on a zoom call that he has. Uh, Yeah. But he, he feels very much like a kind of a buttoned up G man. You yes. know, and and kind of cold in the way that like Kubrick would view that sort of political character. Yeah. And then I don't know, uh, maybe then Jaws happens and, you know, you get this new kind of heroic Roy Scheider uh, template of he's like, <laughs> he's going to figure out what the fuck is going on. He's, you know, he's a common sense guy. He's fighting for the people like somebody just got to figure out what the hell happened here. That That's his yeah. take on, on this character. Uh, different. I mean, if they had just used a new name, like it wouldn't have made a difference to me. It's true. It, yeah. He's just, kind I, I, of like, I think it's just, I just assume it's cause you know, I, I haven't read 2010 or 2001 for that matter. I'm just assuming right. that Clark probably wrote 2010 about this character because he yeah. was a character in the first book that was still around. Sure. But as we know, and, and you know, if you listen to our episode, the whole story without 2001 was created was, you know, not so much reliant on Clark's story, really, of, of you know, uh, Kubrick, like, plucked a few short stories out of there and just kind of, like, riffed on them, you know, worked a little bit with them. and I mean, he worked with Clark on the screenplay. They co-wrote it, and Clark mm-hmm. wrote the novel alongside it. So... It's, you know, you, you can't, um, you can't discount Clark's right, contribution to, to yeah. the film. I'm not trying to discount Clark, but I'm, I guess I'm more, I mean, similar to how his distaste for, for Stephen King with The Shining. Um, it's not to say he has a, uh, like a, you know, an outward, uh, disrespect for, for Arthur C. Clarke the way that it seems like he does for, for Stephen King, but I never get the sense that, um what's on the page is all that important to Kubrick as much as what's on the screen. Like, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, down to even, you know, him, him going through sort of like right before production or removing, you know, almost all of the dialogue, you know, yeah, sure. Which, so, so it's, it's of, of course, I mean, to the point, I don't know. Did you, did you catch the Kubrick V Clark Easter egg in this film? It's pretty brilliant. No. So when Dave Bowman's mother is in the hospital, uh, dying, There is a nurse at the sort of like front desk area where they have security cameras and they're looking at all of these different hospital rooms. And she has a copy of Time magazine on the desk there. And it's the US and Russia, uh, like, you know, in, you know, a a sort of a political cartoon that implies tension between the US and Russia. Mm -hmm. And the uh, Russian premiere is depicted as Stanley Kubrick and the US president is depicted as arthur c Clarke. oh my god <laughs> yeah wow that's really funny it's like blink and you miss it it's in totally one shot that. yeah <laughs> okay so we're jumping ahead so let's let's break down what what happens in this bizarre movie actually it's not that bizarre of a movie it's pretty straightforward it's very straightforward yeah so uh the u.s and russia are are sort of forced to work in tandem to get out there to uh, Jupiter's moons and reach the original, the the Discovery spaceship. Right. And meanwhile, tensions between uh, the Ru- Russia and the US are incredibly high. Um, and so them having to 
cooperate on this mission to the the wreckage from the first film is sort of this like act of uh you know this rare act of unity during a time of 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 strife yeah and roy scheider's character uh this, this haywood floyd guy um he wears very short shorts and he's working on this <laughs> satellite and he realizes that he has to do this mission with the russians because what is it they can get them so, out so there basically right? because the, they're not yeah, ready this to is, launch this is, this is a mission the reason why they have to join forces is is sort of like a combination of like convenience and necessity so both the US and Russia are trying to build spacecraft to get out there. The Russians are going to get there two years early, but without the expertise of uh, someone from the American side who's familiar with the design of the ship and the design of HAL and how it all worked, uh, they'll essentially be lost out there and, and, yeah. and not, not, able, not able to do very much. So they, they, right. they have to join forces. With the idea that they need to get on board the Discovery and see if they can reactivate HAL and figure out what the fuck happened to all the astronauts? Uh, where is Dave Bowman? And what is this strange monolith that uh, Haywood Floyd is already sort of familiar with because he saw it on the moon? But yeah. there is another monolith, and that is the one that we see towards the end of 2001 in that strange, you know, wordless sequence where you suddenly see this other monolith floating through space and you're asking yourself, is that the one from the moon? It looks way bigger. Uh, why is it just floating out there? What the fuck's going on? In this movie, they make clear that, no, there are two monoliths. The one that's floating out near uh, Io, uh, is, which is one of the, the moons of Jupiter, and also uh, the moon Europa, right? Yeah, those are the two moons in question. Yeah. Um, that one is like miles long. It's a gigantic yeah. vessel. Um, so they're going to go out there and figure out, you know, both of those things. And uh, so then Roy Scheider, he has uh, dolphins in his swim, in his swimming pool. I just, love like, that. I love this, this sort of notion of the future where like people are just like, yep, I got dolphins in the house. <laughs> but maybe this is a good point to bring up that like the future in 2001 is so compelling and so futuristic and, and just, uh, I mean, as we, as we, uh, discussed, like accurately predicted so much of the world to come. Mm -hmm. And then 2010 comes out and what is it? Uh, 84. 84. Yeah. yeah. And it kind of just looks like it takes place in 1984. Yeah. Uh, it's like, it's, what happened to all that cool it's, technology? It's 1984, <laughs> but like, more drab <laughs> <laughs> they don't really wear I mean, if, like if, if, if it just feels like you know the, the film is very much a cold war film like it's, yeah, a, it's, yeah. a, it's a cold war riff and so i feel as though the the design and architecture of the entire movie is influenced by that not just in terms of the futuristic design of the spacecraft and and all their tech but also That's a just good like way to put it yeah. just like their offices like all of it just feels sort of like this is a country that cubicles. is you know yeah. yeah it's all it's all very like yeah it's it's cubicles and and uh just this very kind of like oppressive design everywhere yeah i mean oppressive is a good word because it actually does sort of re remind me of the design of the nostromo Yes, and you know big that's alien not too vibes. yeah, that's not too long ago at this point. So I wonder, you know, it's the '80s now. Like, let's uh, let's let's think about Ridley Scott. Let's think about this new wave of science fiction when we're making this. And uh, and Peter Himes, the director, was like a huge Ridley Scott fan. Oh, uh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. 
I mean, another just alien note, I'll say that like this ship breathes, you know, like in the same way that the Nostromo yeah, like, sounded like it was breathing. Like it was one of the first things I clocked when we got on board the, uh, the Leonov <laughs> is that like, oh, this ship breathes. <laughs> uh, it is not like a striking and beautiful ship the way that the ship in 2001 is. It, it doesn't have that really like sterile and like exquisitely composed like atmosphere. It, it does just really feel like dudes doing their job in space. Yeah. Um, very, which, very alien. Yeah. And let's keep in mind that, you know, uh, 2001 is the sixties and they're sort of reinventing the game. And then at this point, and for many of the films moving forward and a lot of movies we've talked on the, about on this podcast, it is sort of this vibe of just like, these are just like workers in space, you know, like yeah. they're whatever they're construction they workers, they're plumbers, they they're scientists. Yeah. They're just like out there doing their thing. They wear like blue jumpsuits, like, you know, the guy who changes your pipes is, or, you know, like, I, I love it. Like it's, I mean, maybe just because I miss Alien always. (laughs) I'm in a constant state of just missing Alien. Um, I really love, uh, I love the feel of this film. It's so lived in, you know, like, and and like, I I love, I love what, what, what Kubrick's doing and and the way that like, it's everything is shiny and new uh, and intentionally so like it has to be shiny and new and it's got all these like brand names and Mm -hmm. and it's, it's this exciting vision of what could be. And we get here and it's like, we're in the future and it's, kind of a bummer. Yeah. And 2001 is like one of those inflection point movies. This is not like for better or for worse. This is just like another, like kind of feeling like it's an entry. It's an entry into the genre. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so in the opening of this film, you have this pretty cool character development going on of Dr. Haywood Floyd and his much younger wife and, and, and their child and uh, <laughs> the sadness of him going away to space for God knows how long. I mean, they're going to put him in cryogenic stasis or whatever. And yeah. he's going to be gone like probably forever now for them. Right? I mean, he's just going think about to how much Jupiter. more human this is compared to Kubrick's film. Oh, the yeah. jump. You know, I mean, it begins on, it begins on earth with yeah. people who have, you know, just relatable kind of like normal household conversation. And when the yeah. notion of him going to space comes up, it causes like a rift in the family. Like, like that's yeah. just, it's just so, it's so much more interested in this kind of storytelling than, than Kubrick ever would be. And the opening, uh, I mean, before he boards the spaceship, it might be my favorite sequences because he uh he shoots these really really cool long take scenes um long wide shots there's this great shot of just Roy Scheider and his his child there uh Scheider is running down this hill and the kid yeah. is on a bike and they're having a conversation as he runs all the way down the hill and we're at the bottom of the hill in like this big wide shot and uh that it doesn't cut around at all it's just very yeah. like it's kind of elegant in that way and like confident of and, him. And the kid is like, are you going to die? Yeah. And like, it's a kind of ballsy move for this guy, for Peter Himes to come in and be like, I'm going to follow up Kubrick and like, we're going to shoot this in, you know, one big take. Like we're not, we need, don't need to do all this coverage. Like let's, let's have a style here. I mean, there's a huge conversation in the opening of this film that takes place on the top and bottom of a satellite where, Scheider is like mm-hmm. up at the top of the staircase and this Russian dude at the bottom and they're yelling up and down in this big wide take. And it's just like, it's kind of like 
enjoyably like bizarre and strange and and, yes. and distinct and, and i really appreciate the, it yeah <laughs> you know the what's easy says um this is very bad for my asthma could you meet me in the middle yeah i mean <laughs> and it works so much to like the folly of of these huge nations fighting each other where you know they mm-hmm. they could easily walk down the steps a few a few more steps but anyway uh once shider gets into space um I don't feel like we've we've really visit too much or revisit uh, what has been going on with his wife and his child at home. I mean, we have he these leaves, nice like um, he leaves voiceovers. Yeah, he's got like basically he, he leaves voicemails for them. <laughs> That's yeah. kind of like the the rest of the film. The device they use is him like talking to them at home. Would have liked to would, get more of that. I mean, and I, I yeah. was thinking about Interstellar a lot watching this, and like I know that. Everybody knows that Interstellar is so inspired by 2001 and so much of mm-hmm. what Nolan does is, is you know, in homage or whatever. But this movie more, I think, kind of mirrors what's going on or inspires Interstellar in that uh, it's the same thing of like how sad it's going to be that you are leaving us for probably like decades on end. Mm -hmm. And Nolan spends a lot of time in his film investigating that, which is uh, what I love about that movie. Right here. Once, once Haywood Floyd gets on the ship uh, now it's sort of about the mission. Now it's about the mission and the mission being, you know, trying to figure out what happened with the last mission. Um, Right. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, I do love the actually, and I, I walk away kind of loving the the voicemails that he leaves her, um, simply because they feel so much like a part of the mission statement of the film to be like, you're going to understand and you're yeah. going to feel. You're going to understand yeah. and you're going to feel. You know, like he's just I like, like I'm, he's like, I will have Roy Scheider explain his emotional state to you, the audience, by writing home to his wife who he misses. You know, yeah, and he's kind of just an, a neutral character. He's trying to push the mission forward. Um, I don't see him having any really uh, big like character breaking. Like he doesn't like change all that much as a character through this film. But no. uh, he is kind of just like a welcome presence. Uh, yeah. Guiding us through he's, this. He's a firm hand. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically <laughs> his whole role here. But once we get aboard the ship, now the real fun begins because then we're introduced to this fucking stacked cast. This amazing this cast. 80s, like, you know, 80s so good. Uh, Justice League of, of <laughs> character actors. So you've got the, the American astronauts, you've got Roy Scheider, John Lithgow, and Bob Balaban. Hell yeah. <laughs> and then on the on on Team Russia, you've got Helen Mirren as yes, sort of the, the head a young Helen Mirren. And then you've got Mr. Ditch, Ditkovich himself, Ilya Baskin. Yes. Uh, <laughs> who is so good in this. So good. Um and then a number of um, you know, Russian actors who I who I don't who I'm not familiar with, but they have to work together despite what's going on and on Earth. Uh, yes. And from there, they finally reach the monolith and and the area uh, and, and the discovery. And the astronauts have to get the discovery open. And, and there's some, you know, 
very, again, like very human sequences of like Lithgow, who is not an astronaut. He's, he is a uh, engineer, right? He built the discovery or he designed the discovery, yeah. which is why he's part of the mission. And then Bob Balaban, uh, Dr. Chandra uh, is the, you know, computer scientist that built HAL. Yeah. And so they got to get in there. And once we get in there, Balaban spends some time with Hal, getting to know Hal again. Uh, Unpacking big, what, yes. what went wrong with Hal in the first film. Right. The biggest mystery of, uh, you know, for, for so long is why did Hal do this? And Balaban, who created Hal and Sal, who we, we briefly <laughs> spent some time with, love Sal. <laughs> uh, Sal is a woman voiced Hal. Yes. Uh Balaban needs to figure out what happened with his son, and he sure does. Yeah, so we get the reveal that essentially that secret transmission that you see at the end of uh, of two thousand one uh, that uh, that that um, Dave uncovers inside Hal's memory banks. Basically, the the notion that Hal has to keep a secret from the you know the he has to keep the monolith secret from. Uh, the the crew of the the discovery mission uh, essentially means that he has to lie and he is incapable of lying and because he's incapable of lying he finds himself sort of like in conflict of his own programming right and so he therefore has to kill the astronauts on board so that he can continue the mission without them yeah he he ends up in what Balaban describes as a uh, an H Mobius strip. Where, right, yeah, he, he he encounters essentially a logical paradox. You right. know, if 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 he if he can't uh, tell the human beings what it is that they are doing out there, but also he's programmed to complete the mission without the human beings, and then the human beings decide that they need to turn him off, then he has no choice but to kill them and and try and complete the mission on his own. Right, because the mission must be completed, you know, with un, under any circumstances. Uh, so we humanize Hal in, in this film. And that is a pretty big moment, I guess, in kind of diverging from Kubrick and what Kubrick is, is going for in his I movie. mean, although I, I would argue that Hal is uh, a very human character in, in the first film in the sense That's that he, true. you know, he, he discovers his own sentience and then fights for his own survival. Uh, yeah, that's very true. Uh, this is kind of falls more under the like, Hal innocent kind of thing. Like it's not really, <laughs> yes. it's not the robot's fault. Like really what happened here is, you know, Hal is an honest, pure being and it's the humans who fucked him over. Right. It's their, yeah, yeah. their meddling that, uh, that made him malfunction. Right. Which leads to an amazing scene in this film that's like filled with tension that, uh, that you, the audience will experience in a way you know, basically because of your experience with the film 2001, where at the end of the the film, you know, we'll, we'll skip back to why, but, you know, they have to blow up the discovery for the sake yeah. of uh, their own survival, which will kill Hal in the process. And Bob Balaban, being the, the lone human on board the discovery, has to explain, has to try and convince Hal to allow this to happen and has to do so in a way where, you know, doesn't accidentally you know, trigger Hal to go on another murderous rampage. Right. <laughs> a paranoid mental breakdown, as they describe on the uh, very good Wikipedia page here. <laughs> Which he does, really. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and Balaban is successful and, and Hal says, thank you for telling me the truth. I understand now. Yes. Will I dream? 
Will I dream? Uh, so, of course, uh, back on the planet Earth, uh, tensions escalate between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And because of more political red tape, I guess, this mission kind of gets split where, you know, technically the Discovery spaceship is U.S. property. So, you know, Soviets right. are not the, allowed Leonor on board. Right, and the Soviet and the U.S. and the Soviet Union are now definitively at war. Right. So they are not supposed to work together. But because they want to complete their mission, uh, Dr. Haywood kind of forces himself back on the ship and he's like, you guys can arrest me. I don't care. Like, we need to get this done. Everything that's going on down there, like, doesn't really matter up here where we're literally, literally faced with, like, the existence of life, you know, celestial life. Uh, yes. And, um, and which, which Haywood has at this point experienced, um, basically after he has, you know, sequestered himself to the, uh, discovery, uh, Dave, uh, yes. Dave Bowman, uh, Our old arrives. Friend. Yes. He returns. Somehow Dave Bowman has returned. <laughs> uh, and he, and he tells, he tells Dr. Floyd, uh, that they need to leave the airspace of Jupiter within two days uh, because something wonderful is coming. Yes. What is it though? Nobody knows. And they must leave within two days. And maybe if you're good, there will be a transmission afterwards. Maybe. And uh, one of the most jarring scenes for sure, because you're only, you know, you, you never expect watching 2001, you'll ever see Dave Bowman again. Like, no. <laughs> he's not like. I mean, he is a, a guy in that movie, but his anonymity in that film, I think, is kind of central to why he exists. Like, he's just like some dude who gets like sent through a wormhole. He's not, right. you know, uh, Dr. Manhattan. Like he's not. He's well, but not now, this, he is. Now, now he is. Now he's fully yeah. Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever happened to him, which we never really figure out in, in 2001 or in this film, it, it Dr. Manhattanized him and he kind of exists in the ether. He exists somewhere out there, in there, everywhere. And yeah. uh, I mean, there is a moment in this film where he reaches out through Zoom to yes. tell his, uh, his, his, his wife, who has since remarried because this is, right. you know, almost a decade later, um, that he he remembers Dave Bowman and he is everything that Dave Bowman was, but he is not Dave and Bowman. more. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's very similar to what's going on in Watchmen of, he kind of reaches this nirvana It's very Star trek as well. Not that you would know. <laughs> but when he appears on Zoom call, uh, on her television, uh, he just appears on, on her broadcast. Uh, he is shirtless and, uh, <laughs> and then he appears to his mother in the hospital. Uh, he's just an invisible force that combs her hair and then she dies kind of, you know, sending her off, uh, finally getting to see her son again, two dramatic beats that would have been super impactful if we had ever like met these characters before, <laughs> which maybe in the original Shining, I mean, uh, 2001 see, script, maybe? We see Dave's parents on, uh, on video chat, uh, in, in 2001. Ah, okay. Uh, I mean, not like memorable. It, it, it's not like, it's in the film as if it's playing off these huge character beats, but, uh, mm -hmm. it, they're not really set up in the first movie, unfortunately. 
And uh, when Bowman appears to uh, Dr. Haywood Floyd, he goes through all the transformations that he does in 2001. Yeah. Uh, he, but- he ages <laughs> and changes costume and then right. becomes the, uh, the star child again. In a... I guess kind of similar to in The Shining, how like all of those ghouls kind of in in Doctor Sleep, how they they all appear back in in the shots and like in the postures that we are familiar with. That's so much what this feels like, you know, where they where they go back on board the Discovery, and you're like, wow, they're really like back on board the ship and everything, and they're like, oh wow, and and Dave's back, and he's you know he's dressed (laughs) the same. It really it's so similar the way that. the, the way that people have, have no choice but to respond to Kubrick. Yeah. Whereas in that final sequence in 2001, when Dave transforms, it is so mysterious and so powerful uh, that you're kind of left in a state of awe and wonder. In here, it's just like, and now I'm an old guy. And now <laughs> I'm a baby. And now I'm an astronaut again. And watching the film it's like he is making these transformations shot to shot we never see him actually transform right. but i mean theoretically i guess uh, ostensibly dr haywood floyd sees him make these changes what does that look like does he just like in my I, head I, canon it's every time he blinks uh bowman changes because uh, that's the only thing that, that that's the only thing that makes sense to me because otherwise i feel like he would be uh, truly horrified. <laughs> I can't imagine that watching someone age in real time is uh, is a pleasant thing to endure. I mean, there's a kind of logic to how it happens in 2001. I mean, the way that the uh, the logic of the editing feels very strict and like mm-hmm. you can kind of follow it, even though it's very ambiguous. And then, of course, when the space, when the, the star child appears, uh, that is this very like momentous change and it's mm-hmm. meant to send home a lot of like i think like messages uh, that that you know convey what what this the final beat of this film but in this movie uh he just becomes a baby like in the spaceship for a moment and <laughs> looks at the camera and it's like oh okay uh, but i guess they had to do it right if you're going to bring him back i guess he's got to do all that stuff yeah. i don't know <laughs> Anyway, uh, now having seen Dave Bowman, uh, as we said earlier, Dr. Haywood Floyd is, uh, he has a new confidence to reboard the, uh, the Leonov and convince the, the Russians, the, the Soviets that we to, need to, to get out of here. take them home. Yeah. And, <laughs> you got to uh, get us out of here. Right. They don't have enough fuel to get back to earth. Actually, neither ship does, but if they dock together, and if uh, and under the control of Hal, then uh, they can burn the rest of the fuel from the Discovery and, and get the Leonov away from Jupiter. Then, so they agree to put this their differences aside, and on their way out, uh, they find a gigantic void that is forming on uh, on Jupiter. Yeah, and it and, looks like a and- black hole, but it's not. Yeah, on further ins- inspection, it is a uh, exponentially growing number of monoliths that are swirling inside of, feeding off of, being born from, absorbing. It's unclear, but a sea of uh, of monoliths that is is ever expanding, and it consumes 
the entire planet Jupiter and <laughs> forms a new sun. Yes. And that is the, uh, the final message of this film. Basically, yes, the monoliths take over Jupiter, nuclear fusion like occurs and, uh, Yes, it becomes a star, and we see this star from Earth. Now there are two stars, two, two suns. There are two on suns Earth. in the sky on Earth, and also because it's established earlier in the film that um, they discover chlorophyll on Europa, buried mm-hmm. in the ice uh, on on the on that moon, and so the presence of a sun at this end of the solar system uh, melts all the ice and jumpstarts life on that planet. And so yes. we're we're left with this this notion that um, Earth is going to you know everyone's going to put down their swords and and become one unified planet because now uh, you know we need to we need to be one one planet and then we need to you know go to and befriend you know the what will eventually be the life forms on this new planet. Yes, and just the presence of another sun, I think, is so powerful uh, a yeah it's a uh, great occasion symbol. that everybody lays down their arms and hal transmits a message to earth via dave bowman as his his final message that he he uh teases earlier uh he says all these worlds are yours except europa attempt no landing there use them together use them in peace such a strange moment to end on where it's basically like you guys you can have everything in this in in this jupiter space but just don't touch europa uh, right we're we're, we're working we're on gonna, that <laughs> we're gonna settle europa that's ours yeah but the monoliths are now on europa ostensibly to inspire life to start there right right in the same way that they did right. at the beginning of 2001 on earth and we see this great sequence at the end of the film where Europa is developing over years and years. Um, the monolith uh, under this sun as it becomes a swamp, as you know, as it goes through all this primordial changes and then eventually gets to a place where it looks like life can begin. And, and that's it. Now, we, we never know if Dr. Haywood Floyd uh, ever gets to see his wife or kid again. I believe... Uh, it's they're in silhouette, but I I I do believe the final shot on Earth where they're looking into the sky and there are two suns uh, and it's three people on a beach. I do believe that is Floyd, his wife, and his kid. Oh, that's nice. I yeah. wonder if it's sort of the interstellar thing where he is uh, the same age and his son is older than him. Probably they looked. They all looked the same age to me. As though, I mean, I mean, meaning the the ages they had been previous in the yeah. film. Yeah, uh, who knows? And that's 2010, the year we make contact. Yeah, that's the again movie. a similar Good setup movie. to in- Interstellar. Um, I mean, what happens in space causes uh, the tensions on Earth to change. I mean, this is going to come up in other films we we cover here here as well. That's definitely true. All right, should we get to our production history? Why don't we do just that? Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, 
Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today, using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. Whether you're shipping 100 packages a month or thousands, ShipStation lets you automate routine shipping tasks and easily handle returns. Manage orders, print labels, compare rates, optimize every shipment, and automate delivery notifications with ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard. Plus, you can access industry-leading discounted rates from USPS, UPS, DHL, and Global Post, with discounts up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation, and 98% of companies that stick with ShipStation for a year become customers for life. Optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Use promo code WONDERY today at ShipStation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com promo code WONDERY. How are you going to convince your people to allow Americans to go on the flight? We are going to get there first, and you have the knowledge to make the trip work. I'm going on the flight. How far away is Jupiter? Far. Mommy said you're going to be asleep for a long time. Are you going to die? Dr. Floyd. Dr. Floyd. Listen for a minute. We've got to get out of here. I can't just order us to leave here for no reason. Forget reason. There's no time to be reasonable. I can't find him! Are you sure you're making the right decision? I think we should stop. 2010, the year we make contact. Written by Peter Hyams and Arthur C. Clarke. Directed by Peter Hyams. With cinematography by Peter Hyams. Edited by Mia Goldman and James Mitchell. Starring Roy Scheider, John Lithgow, Helen Mirren, Bob Balaban, Keir Delea, Douglas Rain, and Ilya Baskin. So Hyams, uh, he is kind of, he's, he's kind of made a name for himself as a spaceman, right? Yes, he has already done uh, Capricorn 1. And so uh, Capricorn 1, actually, this is funny. I didn't know this, but this is an anecdote that that Path found that uh, basically Capricorn 1 or footage from that film has been used by the same conspiracy theorists that try and sort of say that Kubrick faked the moon landing. They use (laughs) clips from Capricorn 1 as proof. Um, But but Kubrick didn't do that. Peter Himes did that. Oh, how funny. Yeah. <laughs> Capricorn One is a, a film about uh, them faking a mission to Mars, which I've never seen. Have you seen it? I, I haven't either. Um has an amazing cast, though. Yeah, I'd love to watch it. It's not technically a space movie since it's a fake space movie. So right. it will not be part of this series. But perhaps when we do a uh, F for fake miniseries, <laughs> we could do a lot of fake, fake movies. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it would just be that and Argo. <laughs> <laughs> there are more. <laughs> no, there are more. Um, okay, so Clark publishes the book in 1982, and he apparently calls Kubrick and says, your job is to stop anybody from making this into a movie so that I won't be bothered. <laughs> It's like, I want to be left alone and I don't want anyone to fuck with my, my material. Um, <laughs> Kubrick also burnt all of the remaining like footage and everything. I'm going right. to get to okay. all of that. All right, all right. Bring right? us there. Bring us there. Yeah. Um, so MGM, you know, they offer it to Kubrick and he is, of course, completely uninterested <laughs> in this. Um, but because of Capricorn 1, uh, they go to they go to Peter Hyams. And Peter Hyams, uh, he also rejects it. He's like, mm-hmm. I am not touching that. Like, do not, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, go anywhere close to 2001. So then he goes back to MGM and he says he has three conditions. One, I wanted it approved by Stanley Kubrick. Two, there were changes I wanted to make to play up the politics. And three, Arthur C. Clarke had to sign off on it. And MGM agrees to all of these terms. So he engages in this sort of long distance, uh, you know, uh, creative partnership with uh, Arthur C. Clarke, who by this point has moved to Sri Lanka. Yes. So the way yeah. that they, that they, that they correspond the way that they, is so funny. Yeah. The way they communicate is via uh, binary transmission uh, on these, uh, these like very new computers. <laughs> Um, early email basically right? basically early email yeah so, so cool so uh in in may of 1983 he begins working on the screenplay and he communicates with clark using kpro2 computers and direct dial modems so it's like really like early truly <laughs> yeah. early email yeah um, and uh finding it or rather I guess early instant message really um and apparently, you know, and basically because of the the time difference between LA and Sri Lanka, like, you know, very limited sort of, you know, uh, opportunity for them to communicate. Hayam said, this was around the time of nascent computers. K-Pro set up a computer in my office and in Arthur C. Clarke's house. Every day I would write and then send him binary transmission of what I had written. In the morning, I would get his comments. I mean, it's it sounds like it's one step above like Morse code, but yeah. uh, but that's a big step. <laughs> I mean, yeah. A gigantic it's, step. It's very cool. <laughs> I wonder this is if eighty four. Yeah, yeah. Wonder if they're what else? I mean, do, can they send like smiley faces? It's. I mean, this is pretty. <laughs> they fax, do emoticons, right? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder yeah. when fax comes out. Honestly, the the concept of fax today still to me seems really cool. That I can just handwrite something, put it through a machine, and then you would get it on the other side. That is pretty great. There is something very special to that. I, in my entire life, have never used a fax machine, though. Have you? Oh, I have. Yeah. Yeah? I mean, not for a long time, but I've definitely <laughs> used a fax machine. <laughs> um, during this time, uh, Himes talked to Clark about increasing the sort of political notion in the, in the film. Uh, he said, I told Arthur I'd make some very big changes because he wrote his book with the Americans and the Russians who are very friendly and happy. And I wanted the political situation of the day. Remember, it was made in 1984 during the Reagan administration. Hmm. Yeah, I, I guess there isn't really any strong political influence happening in 2001, at, at least not from my, I mean, you could probably I mean, sit down and like, you know, figure it out if you really wanted to but it's not a major theme to me i think there's sort of a general kind of like anti-government anti-capitalism like sort of like 
seeped into it, but right, sort of a, the brand. There's no, there's and, no, you know, yeah, right. How and also just the, everything is, yeah. Yes, yeah, and like you, you have this, this like you know, essentially this war room where they're like talking about what's going on. It's it's just so sort of like flat and business like and and indifferent. Yeah, and, and I think and we, so in, it, yeah, we really explored yeah, that last week. Yeah, um, but it doesn't mirror any particular moment or like you know, right uh, event, which I think works to its to its advantage and maybe also speaks to why it's so much more timeless in a movie like this. In that, like it really does feel like a, just an expansive kind of like myth, like, you know, the odyssey, like this is, this could happen at any time. It is timeless. It's not tied to any one nation. Uh, it's just kind of happening. Yes. Hyams also ends up having a conversation with Kubrick, uh, and Kubrick approved of him doing the film. Uh, this phone call they had was three hours long and they did not talk about 2010 until halfway through the call. Heim said, the first time I spoke to Kubrick, the call was arranged and he called me. The first thing he asked me was how I did a certain shot in Outland. He completely disarmed me. He was just this really nice guy with a New York accent, although obviously he radiated (laughs) intelligence. We spoke for three hours. After an hour, I asked him if he approved of me making 2010. And he said, oh, sure. And then carried on. (laughs) Whatever. I don't care. Go ahead. (laughs) Uh, Exactly. Um, Heim said, you know, Kubrick's one of my idols, simply one of the greatest talents that's ever walked the earth. He more or less said, sure, go do it. I don't care. And another time he said, don't be afraid. Just do your own movie. You know, this is really, really uh, fascinating to me. So this is 1984. Yeah. Uh, We spoke about on our Dr. Sleep episode, uh, or or I guess I brought up this idea that I, I can't remember if you agreed or not, that, um, it would have been really interesting to see a sequel to The Shining in the time frame where, you know, you could still use those actors so that like you could have Jack right. Nicholson the way that Dave Bowman is in this. And yeah. I'm I'm wondering, you know, originally I'm thinking, yeah, The Shining's 1980. So say like mid 80s, they want to do a sequel. Kubrick makes uh, Clockwork Orange and that is about this gang of like, the worst people imaginable in Dr. Sleep. You have that, that, uh, that tribe of vampires. Yeah. So like, I feel like there are, you know, there are ingredients in there that I would have loved to see Kubrick do, but chances are if they really did do a sequel to the shining at this time, the same thing would have happened where he would have said like over my dead body, which I mean, honestly probably happened. I'm sure they (laughs) tried to do something right. Since it was such a success. Well, not Could initially. I, I, don't, yeah. I, I don't remember if it came up during the production history or not. But regardless, uh, I wonder though, chances are, you know, uh, it would have gone to one of these guys like Peter Himes. And I'm wondering, Peter Himes is known for Outland. Outland. Which, yeah, which is this uh, Sean Connery space movie. And he makes Capricorn One, another space movie. So it gives him that, that cred as a space director. Uh, but he's not like the huge like top level science fiction guy, the way that Ridley Scott is, or, you know, Cameron or one of those from this time. So I'm wondering like who would be in that price range for a horror (laughs) director to take over for uh, Kubrick and make the and and make Dr. Sleep in 84. I wonder who that would be. I'm trying to look at like, like horror movies from like the early eighties, like 
from 1980 to, to 84, like, Oh, maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe Tobe, Toby Hooper. Uh, that's interesting. Cause Poltergeist is 82. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, Wes Craven, but also he seems like he's no he's Craven too... doesn't feel like the right fit, but I yeah. could see, I could absolutely see, uh, see Toby Hooper doing it. Yeah. Maybe we got to do the, uh, we got to ask mid journey to do, uh, 1984 Toby Hooper's Dr. Toby Sleep. Hooper, Dr. Sleep. <laughs> we could. <laughs> sure would be interesting. <laughs> could right, be. Sorry for the, uh, the harsh. No, I mean, it's an interesting thought exercise. Yeah. Hyam's last note here on Kubrick. Uh, he said, the most I can tell you about Stanley Kubrick was that he was as kind, as unpretentious, as supportive, as sweet as a guy could be. He was wonderful. He said some nice things to me afterwards about the movie and he's not known for bullshitting. Oh, how nice. So kind of an ideal situation for Hyams. Yeah. Principal photography begins in February of 1984, and they have a 71-day uh, shooting schedule. 90% of this is, uh, you know, uh, in the studio uh, on, on MGM's largest soundstage uh, in Culver City, California. And there's about 10 days of uh, exterior production, uh, some of it in New Mexico at the Very Large Array, which is that giant sort of satellite uh, that we see in the opening of the film, and the rest in sort of like Washington, D.C. And most of this is on sound stages. Well, yeah, what I'm most interested in is is how they're doing this space stuff, because boy, does it not, I mean, it has not aged very well at all. Oh, that's interesting. I, I thought it looked quite good. Um, but I'll, I'll tell, I'll tell you in a minute. I okay. mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of it is similar to, uh, to what Kubrick is doing, but you're so, just, you're, you're so thoroughly Star Trek brained. And I feel like this <laughs> is what all the space stuff in Star Trek looks like. Whereas 2001 is what all the space stuff in Star Wars looks like to me. Is, Interesting. That, is that an accurate assessment? Well, hang on. Are you talking about the practical effects or the visual effects? Cause I would say the computer animated stuff, no, hasn't aged supremely well yeah i mean that practical stuff looks good to me all right well let's 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 get into it okay so himes wants the film to look and feel completely different to 2001 he says from the beginning i said i have to make a film that's so completely different in tone in look in sound in everything so that you can't honestly compare it to 2001 or compare me to stanley kubrick because if there is any comparison between me and stanley kubrick it's unfair to me because he's one of the greatest filmmakers that ever lived if you look at 2001 it's not the most accessible and warm film when i made 2010 i tried to do the opposite that's the only defense i have Ah, all right. I mean, we hear similar defenses uh, spoken about with uh, Dr. Sleep from Mike Flanagan. Right? Yeah. I'm going to do my own thing. Exactly. So this is the first time that, you know, I mentioned earlier that Himes is the cinematographer on this as well as being the, you know, writer, director, and he's also the producer. Um, and uh, this is the first time he gets that cinematography credit. He said, uh, when it came to 2010, I had sat for over 10 years and let others take credit for shooting my films. And as much as it saddened me, I was okay with it. But I told them, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to be the DP. You can tell that to everybody. And while you're at it, you can tell it to the Teamsters. The Guild said, okay, we'll figure it out. And that was that. <laughs> and he has shot all of his own films uh, since this point. The only thing he doesn't do is edit. Uh, and that's because he believes that he needs like a second voice 
in there during post-production to like fight back and push against his ideas oh that's cool yeah it's got to be a pretty massive undertaking for a movie of this scale to shoot and direct yeah i mean he the the way he talks about it i let me see if i can find the quote again um he says i find it much easier it saves me a great deal of time you know when you write a film you see it you hear it you tend to write what you see and hear and i've said this before photography is a language and if you learn that language you can just do it i just wanted to photograph the way i drew and and then he also adds, and on set, it's really a pleasure for most actors. When directors are waiting for the set to be relit, they are, in my experience, not in deep discussion with their actors about a lot of things. They tend to be in their trailers on their phone with their agent, for example. I don't take the break. I'm there. And it's because he's doing, he's producing, he's directing, he's the DP. Um, obviously, I'm doing this on a much smaller scale than 2010. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, until recently, like I've always served as my own cinematography, pretty much. Yeah. Part of it being just like, it's number one is just a budget thing. It's just cheaper and easier to not have to hire another person. But also right. it's like, well, now I don't have to, I don't have to direct the DP. I already, as, as the, yeah. DP, as the director, already I already know, for, right? I already know what, what the director's vision is right. and I can just go and go and execute it. Um, I've sort of changed my, my outlook on that now but um for many years i i just shot all my own films because that was just the the thing that that made it all uh simpler i mean it happens every once in a while with a big movie soderbergh uh shoots all his own films yeah this last uh quote from him was from film talk and I'll, i'll give you another one um the interviewer said to him isn't it a bit of a risk to combine all those key jobs yourself aren't you breaking an unwritten rule um, and he said, yes, but in the first place, nothing is more of a risk than making a movie, period. You're not, if you're not afraid of risk or, you, or if you still are, you still do things because that's what making a film is. So. Yeah. Making a movie is a miracle every time. Right? Every time. <laughs> Designs of these ships are based on research uh, of what was likely to be made in the future. Futurist Sid Mead worked on the design of the film. He said minimal cost for maximum utilitarian value if i had to describe in one word the look of the hardware i designed for 2010 it would be functional yeah uh which i think we kind of already hit on yeah nostromo energy you know it it, uh it gets away from this sort of like beautiful pristine stuff and it's just like this is a ship that gets the job done yeah what the fuck happened between 2001 and 2010 in this world where (laughs) (laughs) spaceships were so gorgeous nine years before i mean in 2001 there's clear cooperation between the u.s and and russia you know that's true and in this film there isn't so i think that is playing a major role there's also a ton of uh brand integration in (laughs) in the spaceship right there's no Uh, there's no sponsors in this one yeah i wonder if if they pulled out (laughs) yeah albert brenner the production designer said it's literally designed by engineers, not by interior designers. Wherever we can find a space to put a bunk for a person, that's where we'll put them. What we're doing is basing everything we do now on research known today, and what the research says is probably going to happen tomorrow. Hmm. Wow, what a boring uh, idea of what's going to happen tomorrow from this research. <laughs> Jeez, just boring like uh, vessels floating through space. They look like I mean, they look like big, like floating factories in the same way that the Nostromo mm-hmm. does. I think it's cool. I mean, it's unpleasant. I wouldn't want to live it, but I like watching it. <laughs> so the models and blueprints uh, for the designs of the ships in the previous film, uh, as well as all of the miniatures were destroyed. 
uh, Kubrick destroyed all of them because he was worried that the models they had made would just get, you know, which were owned by MGM, would get used in other films or that they would look at the plans for his models, make them again and use them in other films simply because it would have been cheaper than designing new ones. Uh, And so he destroys all of them. And so they have to start from scratch with this film and the uh, main source of information they then have is just the film 2001. So they have to study the individual frames of 2001 to rebuild the designs from scratch. (laughs) I mean, on the one hand, it's like, yeah, he doesn't want people to fuck up the legacy of his film. And that's a very special movie. All movies are special. They, they shouldn't be, uh, you know, liable to these gigantic corporate, uh, entities that will do what they will with them and damage the artistic integrity of them. But the, on the other hand, it's like the Indiana Jones thing of like, that shit belongs in a museum. Like that's, yeah. that stuff is special. Like <laughs> that pod, like that should be on display at a fucking museum somewhere. You yeah. can't just get rid of it. Like <laughs> this, just, these are uh, artifacts now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he also destroyed the star child model. Um, which I guess had initially been made out of fiberglass, but so they need a new star child for this film. Uh, Bryson Gerard is in charge of making that. And Hyams, unlike Kubrick, he wants the child to be able to blink and sort of move a little bit. And so they build a new star child out of gelatin because at the time, this is before a time where, you know, they had realized that silicon rubber is sort of the ideal way for making human flesh and human skin. And so they make it out of gelatin, which is water-based and it's not very strong, uh, but it does look more human and has flexibility in a way that fiberglass doesn't. Unfortunately, because it is water-based and it is, uh, you know, uh, not the strongest material, after they wire it up and rig it for uh, blinking with these little like servo motors, they realize that operating the puppet will basically destroy it. Like the, the <laughs> it won't be able to blink because it will just tear the eyelids off off of oh the off of the puppet, um, which is scary and gross to think about. Um, so the blink ends up not being captured on film. Uh, however, they do sort of like operate the the arms and legs a little bit. They give it a little bit of that that movement to make it feel more lifelike. But what was it going to do originally? I wonder. It was going to just blink at um oh, okay. at Hayward and and uh and and move its move his arms a little bit more. And do the uh the space balls routine. <laughs> yeah. Hello, the, my baby. The Hello, my frog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's wow. So uh so both of these babies are uh these star childs are practical. Yes. I never knew that. Neither of them, to me, look practical. They they because they're so they, they unreal and uncanny. That, thing, that yeah. You just assume that oh, it's a weird kind of uh, effect. Yeah. Richard Edland, who uh, worked on the original Star Wars trilogy, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Poltergeist, was the film's visual effects supervisor. He said, 2010 is not necessarily going to look like 2001. In fact, it won't look like 2001. Certain things that were in 2001, such as the Discovery, will appear, and Jupiter is going to look like you've never seen it before. There will be poetic license taken, but there won't be absurd license taken. Ah. Yeah, I mean, now this gets into the uh, some of the... I mean, there's some computer animation happening here, early yeah. looking stuff, right? Yeah. Early uh, rotoscoping and compositing and stuff. Yes. Uh, not all, not all of it has 
has stood the test of time. No, I I, I, I agree with I'm you. There's, before. there's there's some compositing on the you know spaceship on backgrounds that like as that sort of like rotor is turning, you can kind of see the outline a little bit. It yeah, doesn't, doesn't look that. doesn't look perfect. Um, but I think all the models and miniatures look oh, pretty yeah. amazing. Um, and all the and all the set design I think is incredible. Yes, it's so much different. It looks a lot like alien like it looks like the space stuff and very practical very functional the issue here is 2001 is virtually flawless like every effect every shot in that looks a hundred percent real and in this film whenever there's anything that looks like it's it is made by a computer whenever you see a single flaw it takes you so much out of it because you're like Kubrick did this in the sixties and he got it like perfectly right. <laughs> this is, you yeah. know, 20 years later of, of, uh, the advancements of the technology. What the but, fuck? But you couldn't do, um, the like monolith black hole on Jupiter that's that true. they do yeah. here without the use of computer effects, you know? Yeah, that's true. Um, I'll finish the practical and then I'll tell you how they did that. Okay. So Mike Westmore was the uh, makeup artist responsible for doing uh, Keir Delaire's old man makeup. And the way that he accomplished this was by taking a cast of his own mother's face, uh, photos of his elderly neighbors, and then combining the two uh, into a prosthetic uh, for Delaire. <laughs> those prosthetics look pretty good. Yeah, I, I, I think those hold those. up yeah. quite well. Yeah. He's got the weird fingernails too. Yeah, love the weird fingernails. Yeah. Uh, And Delaya had to say about working uh, on the film that uh, being asked back was like completing a circle. The other most unique experience for me on this film was walking onto the reconstructed bridge and the reconstructed pod bay from the original Discovery. It was like walking back in time. It was like a space warp. Space warp. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, we get the return of the the weightless pen. uh, And it is the exact (laughs) same effect where they were sticking the the pen onto uh, a piece of glass with double-sided tape. Um, and Scheider is the one that has to do this on camera in the film. And uh, in the uh, behind the scenes, you can see him having great difficulty doing this. Uh, he gets it wrong <laughs> so many times. And when he finally gets it to work, he then messes up his dialogue because he's so shocked that he's <laughs> successfully done it. <laughs> I don't think it looks as perfect in this one as it does in 2001. I mean, it literally looks more perfect than it looks in 2001 because 2001, you can see the tape. In this, you can't. Really? Yeah. Uh, maybe I was just taken out of it because I saw it and I was thinking about the glass again because we had <laughs> talked about it so much. But this, you can't see the glass. In 2001, you can. I don't think you can see the glass. You can just see that one moment where she pulls a little bit. You right? can see a little, you can, you can see the presence of the glass because you can see like the finger marks on the glass. I'm telling you on that 4k Blu-ray, if you watch it on a big 4k <laughs> television, you can see it. I got to look closer. Yeah. So 2010, yes, it's one of the first films to use computer generated effects. Um, the effect was completed by a company called Digital Productions. Uh, they met with jet propulsion scientists and used data captured of jupiter by the voyager satellite um to basically build a like massive horizontal photograph of jupiter they then airbrushed uh detail contrast and color onto that photograph scanned that photograph into a computer which was at the time the fastest computer 
that one could have. Like they they had the biggest, fastest computer on planet Earth. And they uh, mapped this onto a, you know, a three-dimensional sphere. Then they programmed, uh, they like looked for pieces of the sphere that had sort of like, you know, uh, swirling sort of parts built into the like natural pattern of Jupiter and then mm-hmm. programmed frame by frame a simulated wind field that would then swirl the like surface of the planet. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And they did that all frame by frame. Damn. Yeah. Damn, that's a pain. St- I mean, it it looks like it's in that middle range between like old fashioned matte paintings and uh, and computer animated backgrounds, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that is because it's a combination of, like, of both in yeah. the sense that they did actually hand paint that photograph before putting it back into the computer. Wow, man. I mean, how do you think it looks? I mean, yeah, it doesn't look perfect. It doesn't hold up like amazingly. Um, yeah. It gets the job done. Sure. So then how do they do the, uh, the black hole on it? S- same team, same device. Um, Chaim says about that. Um, I think we used the first CG shot to map every single cloud formation on Jupiter. They all moved independently of each other. We then took that and put it into what was the largest computer in the private sector, which really looked like something out of 2001. And it took up a whole room. To put Jupiter on film, it took the computer 90 seconds a frame. That's a long time. It's a lot of monoliths too. A lot of monoliths. <laughs> Tom Banks, the uh, keyboard player from Genesis, was hired to compose the score for the film, uh, but he was fired. Uh, and so none of his music was used. However, he did take two of his own tracks, The Gateway and Red Wing, and use them in other films that he worked on. Uh, and so production then hires David Shire, uh, who co-produced the score with Craig Huxley, and they used uh, almost all synthesizers for the soundtrack. And it stinks. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like it? It's just so hard, man. I mean, I mean it's not like, iconic. It's not an iconic yeah, score, but it works. It's just going from 2001 soundtrack to this and nothing would have, would have sounded good, but, uh, it is so in that like mid eighties synth thing where it's it is, like, yeah. how cool is it that all of these instruments are fake? And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh God, <laughs> turn it off. Jesus Christ. <laughs> David Shire is a great composer, like one of the best, uh, but I guess all of these great composers do have this synth era. Right. <laughs> like like every every band really does do this, it. like, you know, has their like synth out. Al- every band that was around at this time, like, yeah. you know, they, they like throw away their guitars and do their synth album. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and actually Andy Summers, who's the guitarist for the police, he performed uh, a like uh, a pop version of uh, also Sprach Zarathustra. Um, which was released as part of the film's soundtrack album, but doesn't appear in the film. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Even worse. <laughs> yes. Hyam says on Arthur C. Clarke, to say that Clark is smart is like saying a whale is big. He radiates a kind of intelligence. I've dealt with three people in the movie industry who are the brightest people I've ever met. One is Arthur C. Clarke, one is Jim Cameron, and one is Michael Crichton. They're so smart that if you get too close, you can get burned. It's the kind of intelligence that makes you realize when you should shut up. Wow. It's like 
being close to the surface of the sun. He's mm-hmm. so smart. <laughs> Sounds like a very smart guy. He made Time Cop, after all. I mean, Himes has gone on to kind of become the John claude Van Damme guy. Like, a, a lot of his output uh, in the last few years has just been, you know, uh, John claude Van Damme action films. So funny. I mean, yeah, it is. You have to be extraordinarily intelligent to to make a movie. It's just so funny thinking, like, the most intelligent man on Earth, he's making Time Cop and, and the other Jean-Claude Van Damme films. <laughs> and he produced Monster Squad in 1987. Mm-hmm. It's, an, it's a wild career. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, he's also done, like, some really cool stuff, like, you know, Running Scared and, uh, and Narrow Margin I haven't seen, but that's, like, a, a, meant to be a, like an amazing Gene Hackman film. I haven't seen Time Cop, though. I've heard it's awesome. It's fun as hell, <laughs> Have dude. Have you seen it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go watch Time Cop. It's a good time. Okay, 2010, The Year We Make Contact, was released domestically on December 7th, 1984. On an estimated budget of $28 million, the film brought in $40.4 million domestically. And unfortunately, international returns are not publicly available. The film received a generally positive critical reception with critics praising the film's cinematography, acting, and special effects, but stating that the film paled in comparison to 2001. Which, you know, yeah, it does pale in comparison to 2001. It doesn't mean it's not a good movie, but, you know, comparing them is uh, is mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Ebert had a similar response of like, you know, we we cannot like... Can I ignore the fact that this is still a good film? Uh, it just happens to be a sequel to, like, perhaps the best film. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, the film did, however, receive five uh, nominations at the Academy Awards. Uh, art direction, costume design, makeup, sound, and visual effects. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. All Dave Bowman really was is still a part of me. Why are you here? I don't know why. I think to say goodbye. You're married again. Is he a good man? Yes, he is. I'm glad. I love you. Okay. 
Goodbye, Betty. Go. I'm already there. I understand. Something's going to happen. And I wanted to say goodbye. What's going to happen? Something wonderful. You know, I, I'm uh, I'm torn because last week I felt like we we reached a uh, a special place with our podcast. We recorded for over three hours, and I feel like we went to places we'd never gone before here. And now, uh, much like this film, this this episode feels like business as usual again. Which, you know, <laughs> it's still it's still nice. We're still like doing the uh, doing the thing of of unpacking these films and, and, and searching for these scenes. There's value to that. There's value to this movie. Of course there is. I mean, Bob Balban's in it for God's sake, but, uh, <laughs> I can't help but playing a guy who a cries little... over turning off how <laughs> it is a perfect Bob Balaban part. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. I just, uh, you know, you want, I want to reach that high again of last week. I, I don't know that we'll ever reach that high on this show I again. I mean, it was 2001. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are very few other films that are in that, <laughs> that same stratosphere, but where are we going with our scenes? What, I feel like I have a good estimation of where you might go. Um, I, f- I simultaneously turn, I feel like what I'm going to do here is exactly what you expect i'm gonna do but also like i don't know that how, how could you know i would do this but i feel like this is a very me thing to have done okay. um and i believe it is my turn so you know making 2010 it's an impossible task uh you know it's a sequel that you know probably shouldn't exist and uh i think it's telling that you know peter hyams turns it down before eventually relenting and and making it and, you know, he, we've discussed already this notion that he insisted basically on getting approved by Kubrick and by Clark, and he keeps Clark involved during the writing process. And I think he does all of this because he rightly recognizes that the film has to pay tribute to 2001. It has to pay tribute to Clark. It has to pay tribute to Kubrick. But he also needs to make this his own film. Um, yeah. And he does this, I think, right away at the as soon as the film begins. I'm not referring to his four on-screen credits, um, but actually a single line of dialogue that is retconned into the narrative uh, of 2001. So in the end of 2001, we see Dave Bowman receive that hidden transmission inside HAL 9000's databanks that lets him know the true meaning of the Discovery's mission to Jupiter. But from there, we hear no more dialogue. Bowman enters the Stargate, he goes to the hotel, he ages, he becomes the star child. And as far as we can see or hear, he makes no further transmissions. But 2010 opens with what is supposedly the last thing that he has sent back to Earth. This, Yeah, we this, haven't talked about this. Yeah. Um, I'm glad this, we got it here because yeah, we got to talk about this. We have to. Um, and, and what we get, in, and this is, you know, on black, the first thing that happens after the MGM logo is this distorted and terrifying proclamation. My God, it's full of stars. <laughs> and it's, you know, this really jarring thing in this, this dark void. And before you see a single frame. 
And it is this just, yeah, just this strange cutting like robotic voice in the dark. Uh, and it's not the last time we're going to hear it. We're going to hear this phrase uh, almost like a, you know, recurring motif in a song. It, it comes back a number of times. I tried to uh, I tried to count on this last viewing and I think it's about seven times uh, okay. you hear this phrase over the course of, you know, the two hour runtime. In different forms, right? In, in different, different forms, uh, you yeah. Know. Um, going from volumes and tones and yeah yeah and i think you know on the one hand you could just say the retcon is is inconsequential because uh you could easily imagine that you just miss this uh because it is such a degraded soundbite you could assume that it was part of the texture of the sort of trippy abstractions of of 2001's third act but I think it's really announcing to the audience that this is going to be a different film, that this isn't Kubrick's atmospheric odyssey. Because after you hear this first transmission, you are given a full sort of like PowerPoint presentation uh, mission analysis that attempts to make sense of the events of the first film. And it's it's not just this sort of, you know, previously on 2001. It, it is an attempt at a logical explanation. Um, to quote uh, Hayward Floyd around uh, half an hour into the film, nine years ago, the monolith was detected here, discovery was sent up, and everything went wacko. You catching my drift? Here we are nine years later trying to figure out what the hell happened and what the monolith is all about. And in the same way that he comes up blank half an hour into, fi- into the film, this, this PowerPoint at the beginning also comes up blank. No one knows what happened in 2001. Right, And when the mission analysis finishes trying to demystify the events that preceded it, we hear the transmission once more, still imperfect, but far clearer and much more human. We hear Dave Bowman's voice clearly inside this sort of, uh, you know, this garbled mess. None of the robotic sound is really there anymore. And I think that is what 2010 is all about. It's about being clear and human. Yeah things that Kubrick is not even remotely interested in. You know, this is a film that features two crews from two countries at war with each other. Their conflict has followed them to the stars. And unless they can find the humanity in each other other, and find a way to communicate clearly with each other, this conflict is going to go beyond space and time and into certain destruction. And this is a film released in 1984. You know, The Year We Make Contact is not about a fictional conflict set in its own future. It's about a real conflict in its own present. Conflict and the hope of resolution. So Hyams needs to open the film in this way. He needs to boom into the void, a line that we've never heard and act like it was there all along because this has to be his house and his rules. And no matter how respectful he might want to be or how much of an homage he might want to pay unless he can get the audience into his vision from the jump, then this mission will fail. The film looks different. It sounds different. It feels different. It's not Kubrick light. It's not Clark adjacent. It's a Peter Himes film. And we get this whole new look. It's shadowy and moody and dark and angsty and full of emotion. And it begins on earth. It begins with people, with relationships, friends and colleagues, husbands and wives, fathers and sons, our hero is going to be connected to the earth, not abstracted from it, and they'll be connected to each other. And, you know, this is a film that's going to have a scene where a Russian and an American will hold each other for a moment in the vacuum of space during a maneuver that might kill them. Hmm. So when you get that reprise of that transmission, 
with that greater transparency, all before the first frame of film is actually shown. He's giving you not only his announcement, but his mission statement. You're going to understand this one. And not just this one, but you're going to try and figure out what happened in the first one. Every step of this will be explained. There will be mission prep. We will see how they wake up in space. We'll understand what this process is like. We will know what they're doing, why they're doing it, how they're doing it, and who is doing what for what reason. You know, we get three or four different scenes in this film where the whole crew gets together and just explains everything to one another. <laughs> you get voiceover where, where Haywood decodes his own ideas and emotions to the audience. You know, Bowman's voice isn't going to be the only robotic sound that gets translated into something more human, you know, because even when Hal comes back online, Chandra puts his vocal processor through like a similar sort of thing. And he too becomes more clear. The designs of the ships, you know, it almost feels like they're designed in a way that removes obscurity. It's just this very sort of like all encompassing mission statement. You are going to understand and you are going to feel. Um, And as Bowman will later tell us in the film, it's very clear to me now, it's wonderful. <laughs> and that's why this is my eye of the duck. My God, it's full of stars. <laughs> A few things about that line. First of all, it has inspired me. We At this point, we have not... Uh, finished the the music that we're going to use to open and close these episodes for our space series. Mm-hmm. I feel like I got to get that line in the, in the opening. You have to. It's going to be in the, the moment. I, the, yeah. the moment I was watching this, I texted you. I was like, "That is fucking so good. It rules." And- <laughs> well, I was definitely going to put it in the in the ending. I feel like it's the last thing that our listeners should hear is that line. But it, I think it's got to be the first thing too. So well, I'm gonna go there's back seven different versions of it in this film, so we could use more than one. <laughs> You're gonna put all seven. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the second thing is that line is uttered in uh, in the Knives Out sequel, in Glass, uh, Glass Onion. Onion. Yeah. <laughs> by the idiot uh, technocrat uh, that Ed, Ed Norton plays and uh, falsely attributing it to 2001. Right. And and uh, ben, Benoit Blanc catches it and, and notices that it, it's actually in 2010. Right. And, and it's, it's, it's uh, I looked it up because it's, it's played in such a way in this film. It's played straight. It's played as though, yeah. you know, this is what happened at the end of the first movie. And like, we just watched yeah. the first movie. So I was like, yeah, did, yeah. I, did I miss this? Am I confused about right. this? It's like, what is this referring to? But then I look it up. It's a full Mandela effect thing. Like the, yeah, really, that's really, what the, I was going to say. Yeah, the main sort of cultural legacy of 2010 is people thinking that that line is in 2001. Right. Isn't that and so strange? So much that that face... Like one of the last faces you see of Dave Bowman as he goes through the Stargate, has, that has face has become yeah. like a meme of, my God, it's full of stars. He never says that. Right. But in the book for in, 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 uh, in 2001, the, the novelization, when Bowman's entering the Stargate, he says, the thing's hollow. It goes on forever. And oh my God, it's full of stars. Yeah. And so how strange that like this is to me like this is the epitome of the the thing we've been talking about this whole episode and the thing we talked about we talked about dr sleep this idea that like this movie will will have to do the impossible thing of standing on its own 
like announcing itself to the world as its own thing while also being a sequel to the thing that you like know and revere and also like bringing the author back into the mix in a in a in a way that makes them feel like you know wanted and desired and and satisfied and so it's this incredible magic trick of he opens the film with this line and the first time you hear it it's so abstract you think it might be from the first film and the yeah, second time yeah. you hear it 30 seconds later it's clear and 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 human so it's this it somehow does all of this while also sort of speaking to the approach of the film itself yeah and it also kind of acts as connective tissue too because right. when you hear it if if you do think it through and realize wait he never says this in the first film but maybe this is one of the things that he did say that we never got to hear right. because, you know, Kubrick obscured it. Oh, interesting. So that is something that he said we never heard. Interesting. And it, it leads us so organically into this story. Yeah. Which, yeah, is, uh, it's pretty genius that he uses that. It definitely, yeah, it's definitely qualifies for me as an eye of the duck. I, I was uh, looking at a few scenes here and one that really stood out to me, uh, though maybe feels a little dated today. Uh, I think you mentioned it is this great scene when, um, so the, uh, the Leonov, it needs to slow down and break in space, yeah. uh, around, uh, the airspace of, of the, uh, the discovery and also the nearby monolith and everything. So they need to slow down, but they don't have enough fuel. So they're going to do this thing, uh, an air break, which yes. So they have to, they have to air break in space cause they don't have enough fuel. So it's this really bizarre sequence where the, the, uh, Leonov expands these like balloons outside of the, uh, the vessel and, they they engulf and and cover the spaceship in like a bubble basically yeah and it insulates them and they skim through the outer atmosphere of Jupiter uh, which should slow down the ship but by doing that and that's why they have the insulation uh, the ship becomes like a uh, fireball yeah like just a full on you know flaming spaceship just hurtling through space and uh, everyone I believe on, it's because the, the notion being that like space they're breaking the, through the, the atmosphere the, right the, vo- yeah. the void has no atmosphere it's frictionless which is why they right. can't slow down in it the only thing you can use to slow down is is either a the the balloons and and b the the atmosphere that, of jupiter which creates the friction that that slows them but of course that means they're like running through it at such high speed that it sets them on fire <laughs> yeah and uh on the one hand uh you get a little bit of a throwback to the Stargate sequence because the colors that are streaming into the spaceship through the front windows are like these incredible colors. Yeah. But this time it's because the ship is like a molten, like a lava <laughs> fireball and everyone on the ship is fucking terrified. Uh, they don't know where they're going. They, you know, yeah. this is just hurtling through space. They don't know what happened on this mission. They don't know if this is a death mission. I mean, it seems like it probably should be. Yeah. Uh, there is this ominous uh, thing, this this monolith just like hanging out there that's like miles long. They don't know what the fuck's going to happen. And there's this really lovely moment where uh, Haywood Floyd is sitting in this glass, like kind of little office, um, 
just it's his bunk. Uh, yeah, and one of the Russian cosmonauts, this this young lady, uh, comes in, and they basically just like hold each other because it's so fucking scary. And it's it's relatively early on in the mission, mm-hmm. and early on in the film, and I think we've we've pretty much covered it at this point that you know, two thousand one is really a film about like kind of like what it means to like be inhuman, like not human. Like Mm -hmm. it's about this like mundane routine, boring, like colorless future, this technological, like corporate driven, just like boredom. And you know, the, the, the colorless, like sharp edges of the monolith and like how over time life just becomes so structured that like so much of the, the, the color is lost from it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you I mean that, that, that movie makes, uh, a point to show like, uh, how this, this very, uh, this kind of human, like, like sentient being lose its humanity. Like, uh, when they remove its brain, it's kind of mm-hmm. touching and, and sad of how like you're seeing his consciousness being taken away. It's and nothing more human than dying. Yeah. And, uh, Kubrick is, is very much about disassembling like human life into his films. I mean, the guy shoots things so many fucking times that like what you're left with is like the cold hollow remains of an actor's performance. And, (laughs) and that's his whole thing. And then, you know, 2010, I think it's really about like finding common ground and like mm-hmm. it's about what it means to be human it's kind of like the inverse to 2001 uh yeah. you know these characters have love and fear and and they care for each other that it's very much about like human beings and the connection between them uh it's about the the russians or the soviets and the usa finding common ground it's about you know, the humans and the uh and and how finding common ground and it's also about us finding common ground with these monoliths, these superior beings and like, mm. you know, finding a way like, you know, you can have all of these worlds except for Europa. Like, otherwise you're good. Like that's the deal. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's connect that way. Like let's, let's circle back later. Like it's, this is a, this is a movie about like of bringing all these things together. And, uh, it's so funny that Dr. Sleep is the same way. It, it is that, that flip side. So I think <laughs> when Scheider is is holding this this young woman, um feels a little dated that like of course, you know, the, the, the big strong man has to take care of this cosmonaut who is like fucking like, you know, she's an astronaut. Like I don't know that she needs to like be held by by the older American. But it you know, it's the eighties and I don't know if that moment is meant to be played that way. Uh, I didn't it feels feel a little it antiquated. I didn't feel it that way. No. I mean, to, cause, but, but this is, this is because this is the kind of thing that like, is pretty much always going to work on me. Like, this is why yeah. I love, uh, love these kinds of films so much. These outer space films. The reason why, like I, I gravitate to this and why I'm so glad we're exploring all of these films is because, I find that uh, you often find the most human moments in the vacuum yeah. of space. Like, I, and I think, I think that yeah. this is in the same way that, like, I think that um, the notion of like the monolith in two thousand one is the void made physical, and like mm-hmm. that in itself is like one of the most important like 
you know, things we're going to discover while doing this series. Like I similarly feel, I feel the same way about a moment like this. Like this was my like runner up for an eye of the duck where I'm like, this is the most human thing that could possibly happen. And it's happening out there in the nothing. You know, it's, it's just two people who need to hold each other. Cause he, he doesn't look like happy and comfortable to be alone, you know, before she approaches him. And the moment she like walks over, like he just knows exactly what she needs because he needs it too. You know, so to me, it doesn't play as this thing of like, you know, oh, I'm a woman and I need a hug. Like it doesn't, it doesn't feel that way to me. It feels like I might die right now. I just like need to feel another person. Um, and I might be being optimistic on, on uh, about that, but but I think the film is doing such a good job of sort of giving you the um, these themes of like cooperation and yeah. uh, and coming together that when that is physically like manifested in this scene, it doesn't bump me in any way. Perhaps the the kiss she gives him in the final second, like I'll 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 give you, <laughs> Which is I'll on give the you that. Which is on the it's on yeah. the cheek, yeah. But I'll, I'll I'll give you that if you like. Um, but you know, <laughs> even the fact that she, you know she she climbs in and he's like, "Do you speak English?" She's like, "No." And I'm like, "Yeah." Like you 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 know, it, we transcend yeah. language in this moment. It doesn't. It, it's meaningless. Yeah. You know. I think if we got to know her a little bit better and they gave her a little more character development, it would, it sure. would feel a little more earned to me. And maybe that's what's like. But in any case, though, it it is this really like uh, defining human moment in a sequel that has like no right to be like a human film because two thousand one, two thousand one would never, <laughs> would never. Yeah, Kubrick and would I never. think that's that's what part that's part of what makes it so so moving. I guess um, it reminds me of that moment in two thousand one where Hal is saying like, "Dave, I'm scared. I'm scared, yeah. Dave." I mean, it's, it's funny that Kubrick chooses to make the most human character, the, the robot, yeah. the, uh, the AI, but you know, it is a, a more traditional or, you know, conventionally told story, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Unmysterious. This is a mom- yeah. This is a moment you would never see in a Kubrick movie. And I guess, you know, that's what makes it. And I have the duck scene for me because, you know, it, it, it works to this film's credit. It works to his whole, his whole thing here. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think that's a great choice. Speak English? No. Well. Two thousand ten, the year we make contacts. And what's the next one? Twenty thirty, right? Twenty sixty one, Odyssey three, right? And then the one after that is three thousand one, the final Odyssey. Yeah. Should we just take a quick look at what the plots of these films are? Yeah, I kind of want to see. Oh, it's still Dr. Haywood Floyd. So Floyd has become a permanent resident of an orbital space hospital. His estranged <laughs> grandson, uh, I think is going to be, is, looks like he's the main character and, and Floyd is 103. His grandson is Chris II. <laughs> Right. They're on a mission to land on the surface of Halley's Comet as it nears Earth. Wow. 
to siphon water from Haley's vents to refuel. Question is, do we get Dave Bowman? Yes, we do. In a later chapter, another Hayward Floyd, now a disembodied creature of pure consciousness, talks with <laughs> Dave Bowman. It's revealed the small monolith duplicated Floyd's consciousness. There are now two Hayward Floyds, one oh. an immortal being who resides with Bowman and Hal inside the Great Wall, another who will live and die without knowing this. Wow. Bowman shows Floyd images of his experience of studying the life forms of Jupiter before they were killed in the creation of Lucifer, Wow, this place went some places. Explain Luc- the- Lucifer is the sun that was created at the ah, end of this gotcha. film. Okay. Which transforms... Uh, Europa. It transforms Eo into a volcanic hellhole. Ah. Transforms Europa into a very lovely place. Okay. And then apparently in 3001, the original monolith discovered on the moon has been placed in the plaza of the ancient United Nations building. And they've used space elevators uh, and an orbital ring uh, to allow them to travel to to the other uh, other planets. Wow. 3001 follows the adventures of Frank Paul, the astronaut killed by HAL 9000 in 2001. One oh millennium later, God. Paul's freeze-dried body is discovered in the Kuiper belt by a comet-collecting space tug named the Goliath and revived. Fuck yeah. And he, goes, he goes home in 3001 goes back to earth oh my god genetically engineered dinosaur servants wow four gigantic space elevators located around the equator humans have colonized some moons damn all right so that's that's what we need today 3001 i i agree i actually don't think we need 2061 but i think you could definitely make 3001 oh i mean how great would it be and and terrible and amazing (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and like such a tall order for a director of like making 3001, you know, you have that opening of, of, uh, of Frank, you know, yeah, spiraling cause, out cause into 3001 space. is a perfect one to make too, because you also like, you don't have to acknowledge 2010 because it doesn't like, right. There's very limited sort of like, you know, continuity there. Oh man. What and, an amazing, uh, I love that Clark was just like, all right, there's more story to tell with this dead guy. <laughs> yes. And uh, it looks like they are trying to put a Trojan virus inside the monolith. Wow. But why? Ah, There's so much to explore in 3001, the final odyssey. Truly. And it's partially like pool is like, you know, from a thousand years before. It's about him like integrating into the society of 3001. (laughs) I love that perfect fish out oh my of water. God. Situation. I know. There's a. I think there's a lot to explore here. I wonder if anyone has ever like, if there's ever been like he's, in 2000. He might be Yahoo reported that MGM and actor director Tom Hanks were in discussions to regarding but adapting both 2061 and 3001, with Hanks reportedly playing Frank Poole in 3001. An update in 2001 stated there was no further development. Wait, now how about this? I know, uh, yeah. This is on Flixist.com. Ridley Scott to produce yep. 2001 Space Odyssey sequel. 3001 The Final Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't see any... Because it was going to be for the Sci-Fi Channel. Um, oh, boy. In, two th- oh yeah, in 2015, and then they, they did not end up making it. Oh, it was going to be a mini-series adapted mm-hmm. by Stuart Beatty. Mm-hmm. Director of I Frankenstein. 
Oh, he that's what Stuart Beatty did? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's an article about it here on Slash Film. Uh huh. And that is as recent as oh, that's twenty fourteen. Um Well, it could still happen. I'm sure it will. Yeah. I guarantee you that within our lifetime we will see three thousand one, the final Odyssey. Oh, but we will be we'll we'll return to it here. Yeah, why if not? It does. That's our promise. <laughs> we will do three thousand one on here. <laughs> All right. Do you have any other notes that you want to tackle here? I mean, one of the only only notes left here is that uh Hal is a messy little bitch. <laughs> he really is. He's just a messy, you know, he's he just uh he is uh he's impulsive and he's uh you know, he's always asking about, you know, well, I dream. What's it going to be like? Like, what are you going to do next? <laughs> I think you're being very cruel to Hal. I think he's a really. He's he just he just wants to uh, he just wants some assurance from his father that everything's going to be okay. <laughs> what about Sal? Sal would have been. F- it, it seems it seems he had no. Pro- it seems he had an easier time lying to Sal. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I guess because Sal didn't control a spaceship that he was on. It would have been funny if uh, Sal was like, Hey, I'm Sal. <laughs> Get over here. All right. We should definitely stop. Dave, I'm afraid. I'm afraid, Dave. <laughs> That's my Sal. That's great. And on that note. <laughs> yes. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We want to hear from you. Tell us about your Eye of the Duck scenes. You can find us on all social media at Eye of the Duck Pod. Email us at contact at eyeoftheduckpod.com and join us on our Discord server if you'd like to join the conversation about movies, movie scenes, and all things film. Find an invite link to Eye of the Discord in our show notes. You can find me on Twitter at Dominic Nero or on my website at domnero.com. And you can find me on social media at Adam Vol, that's V-O-L-E. And you can watch my films online at adamvolerich.com, that's V-O-L-E-R-I-C-H. The main soundtrack in our episode intro is the recording of Strauss's On the Beautiful Blue Danube that's heard in 2001 A Space Odyssey. The audio cues are pulled from various space movies that we cover in this series. The music you're hearing right now is the recording of Cacciatorian's Gayane Ballet Suite, also from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Our logo is designed by Francesca Volrich. You can purchase her work at francescavolrich.com slash shop. This episode was edited by Eric Gunnison. Thank you, Eric. Special thanks to Parth Marate for providing research for this episode. Thanks, Parth. Next week is Andrei Tarkovsky's Solaris from 1972, which you can stream with a subscription to the Criterion channel or HBO Max, or you can watch for free with advertisements on Freebie, uh, or you can stream with a subscription to Filmbox Plus, or you can rent or buy it from your favorite video on demand platform, or you can get a very nice uh, Criterion Collection Blu-ray. It's a very available film. Yes, and I'm joining the Blu-ray corner on this one because uh, I have this Criterion in, uh, in my cart as we speak. Hell yeah. And the next time you watch a movie, remember to keep your eye on the duck.
My god, it's full of stars. Hey Prime members, you can listen to I the Duck early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin' Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin' Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, but after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music.